0: Okay, so the prayer that I'm going to read is the prayer of the first hour. Um, The church has the service of the hours, the first, the third, the sixth, and the ninth. And compline is technically one of the hours, as is the midnight office. Um, So, O Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us that in it we may behold the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine All-Immaculate Mother of St. Nectarius and of all thy saints. Amen. I hope everyone had a profitable fast, spiritually profitable. Uh, Fasting, of course, is um, a fruit of repentance, but it's also an exercise. It's an outward form of of asceticism that corresponds to an inward form of asceticism. And that inward form form of asceticism is called watchfulness. So just like we're watchful as we eat, uh, watchful of things that we eat, right? So much more, and to a greater extent, we ought to be watchful of the things that enter into our mind and that settle in our heart. So that fasting is uh, an ancient practice in the church. The holy apostles said that whoever doesn't fast on Wednesdays and Fridays cannot commune. Is excommunicated from the church. So fasting is connected to the most important this form of asceticism, this outward form of asceticism, which is connected to the inward form of asceticism, is connected to the sacraments of the church. And so we have these periodic fasts, which are Uh, exercises and from those exercises we gain we gain grace we gain self-knowledge and we fight the demons and that's why especially the feast the fast that just passed is a time when Christians are attacked in various ways by various temptations because of course this fast was dedicated to the Theotokos and the Theotokos of course is above the seraphim and above the cherubim uh, and is a mighty intercessor for all human beings and it was the instrument through which not merely the conduit but also an instrument in, through using her will through which satan was defeated through which the son of god became man and of course defeated death and sin on the cross and resurrected and liberated all human beings And so this is a major wound um, for our adversary. And so the Feast of the Theotokos is also the the Feast of Beauty because, of course, we know that the Theotokos was, in many ways, perhaps in all ways, the most beautiful woman of all that were ever born, that will ever be born, more beautiful even than our first mother, who is the archetype of all women, and the archetype therefore of all female beauty. And the beauty of the Theotokos is not just outward, but it mostly inward, right? The beauty of her soul, which attracted God, and and attracted God to the point where God became a man through her. Um, and so the. The demons, of course, resent that because they they resent the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God and carry about the divine beauty in us, and attempt to disfigure it at every attempt. Last time before the fast, we were talking about we we were finishing our discussion on the second chapter of the book, motherhood and the raising of children, and um, there was a discussion about women in careers. And I think I was misunderstood. Um, What I said was was misunderstood. And I believe the question was, well, if St. Nectarios is saying that the education of women ought to be for motherhood, for the purpose of motherhood, what about women's careers? Um, It's significant, before I say anything, and I'm repeating myself, I'm just reminding you of this from last time, it's significant that Saint Nictarios is saying that women ought to be, young women ought to be educated because most young women of his era were not educated. Only a few that were in privileged families. But he's making a universal argument that all women ought to be educated and ought to acquire an education for the sake of their children, right? But the question of women's careers, should a woman have a career? And what I said was that the women have a calling. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, what I said. Have a calling for motherhood. And that if they pursue a career, it'll be very difficult for them. It'll be very difficult for them because their entire nature is oriented towards motherhood. And our society society is unjust towards women. In expecting them to be both mothers and careerists. right? This rips people, this rips women in half and causes them a lot of pain um, and also causes them uh, unhappiness. And what I think I'll add to that, first I'll add something and then I'll read something that just came in the mail today. I'll add that No one should actually be pursuing a career because a career is a self-interested pursuit, purely self-interested, right? In Greek, there's no real word for it. They had to just transliterate the word career into carriera, which means the exact same thing that it does in English. But it's not a real Greek word. The closest you can come to it in Greek is stadiodromia, but stadiodromia is really another word for struggle. It really means a race in a stadium, right? And that's really far from our conception of career. Um, We should follow our vocation, men and women. What is a vocation? Vocation is a calling, it's what we're called to do. And that calling comes from somewhere, it comes from God. And therefore, following our calling is actually an obedience to God, it's a form of worship. Discerning our calling requires prayer. It requires self-knowledge, uh, right? Because this is we're asking for God to tell us what we should do. Uh, and so, if, back to women: Should women pursue a career? No, they shouldn't. They should pursue their calling, because that's an obedience. If a woman is called to a professional, a professional life, we should understand. Obviously, she should be obedient to that calling, but we should understand that it's going to be extra hard. It's going to be a heavier cross than it will be for a man, right? It's out of, it comes out of our nature. Men and women, we're humans, right? But at the same time, we're distinct and not interchangeable. Today, I got a, um, my wife receives. My wife is a cardiologist, by the way, so I'm speaking out of. Not not just um, I'm not just uh, speaking out of thin air here. Um, we get a newsletter once a month called Cardiology News, and one of the articles, written by a woman named Marsha Frelick, is "Work Life Balance." On work life balance, work life balance dwarfs pay in female doctors' concerns. So. The biggest concern that women doctors who are pursuing for the most part a calling, most of them, right? A doctor who's, who's just a careerist will never be a good doctor. Doctors are called to this. Physicians are called to their high calling, uh, to this high vocation. And it says work-life balance questions dwarf complaints about pay in female doctors' concerns. So I'm just going to turn my light around. It says, sorry if it's reflecting. Work-life balance was the top concern for female physicians who responded to a new Medscape survey, far outpacing concerns about pay. A psychiatrist who responded to the survey commented, I've been trying to use all my vacation to spend time with my spouse. I'm always apologizing for being late, not being able to go to an event due to my work schedule, and missing out on life with my husband. Nearly two-thirds, 64%, said the balance this balance was their top concern, whereas 43% put pay at the top. Medscape surveyed more than 3,000 women physicians about how they deal with parenthood, work pressures, and relationships in women physicians 2020, the issues they care about. That's an issue of uh, it's a publication. An overwhelming percentage, 94% said they have had to make personal trade-offs for work obligations. Women are more likely to make work compromises to benefit their families, a cardiologist responded. I won't. I can't take a position that would disrupt my husband's community ties, my children's schooling, and relationships with family. More than one-third of women, 60, uh, sorry 36%, said that being a woman had a negative or very negative impact on their compensation. Only 4% said their gender had a very had a positive or very positive impact on pay. And 59% said gender had no effect. So the vast majority actually said that gender had no effect. We hear in the news over and over the opposite, that women are are constantly being underpaid. These are the highest paid women. 60% of them don't think that they're being underpaid. That's not their issue. The Medscape Physician uh, Compensation Report of 2020 showed male specialists making 31% more than their female counterparts, and male primary care physicians earn 25% more. There is a fact there, it's a factual basis, but this is not what the main concern of women. Uh, Then they they list some reasons for this, poor negotiating skills, which I think is debatable. Um, Then it says, it says, um, society's view of women as caretaker is powerful, a radiologist commented, women feel like they need to choose specialties where they can work part-time or flexible time in order to be the primary caretaker at home. Okay, so there's a fallacy in here. The fallacy is that it's society that defines this, that it's society that says that women are, 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 are to be caretakers, right? That the w- woman's job is to nurture Children, right? The problem there is that it's not merely society. Society's view is based on something. Society's view is based on nature and it's based on instinct. Right? It's not merely the patriarchy that they the feminists always blame. The 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 men, the men that have ruled society for centuries or so on and so forth, millennia, and have brainwashed everyone into believing that women are caretakers. No. It's their nature. When you see numbers uh, such as 64% of women, women doctors think that um, work life balance is their main concern, right? That tells you something. There's an intuition here that, that's beyond social expectation. But being society, society being the way it is, this is the way that they explain it society's view. It's not really society's view. It's really nature. The survey asked women about their confidence in taking a leadership role, and 90% answered that they were confident about taking such a role. However, only half said they had a leadership role or supervisory role. According to the American Medical Association, women make up 3% of healthcare chief medical officers, 6% of department chairs, and 9% of division leaders. Asked whether women have experienced gender inequity. In the workplace, respondents were almost evenly split, but hospital-based physicians at 61% were more likely to report inequity than were 42% of the office-based physicians. A family physician responded, I've experienced gender inequality more, than, more from administrators than from my male colleagues. I think it's coming from corporate more than medical professionals. In this survey, 3% said their male colleagues were unsupportive of gender equality in the workplace. That's a very low number. The survey responses indicate most women physicians who have children are also conflicted as parents regarding their careers. Almost two-thirds, 64%, said they were always or often conflicted with these dueling priorities. Only 8% said they sometimes or rarely are. That's that's huge. 64% said they were conflicted. That's not just society brainwashing people, right? That's human nature. That's God's will operating in our minds and bodies, right? Again, women should pursue their vocation, but we all have to be realistic about what what that means. These conflicts, sorry, those conflicts start even before having children. More than half in this survey, 52%, said their career influenced the number of children they have. A family physician said, I delayed starting my family because of my career that affected my fertility and it made it hard to complete in, virtu- in virtual fertilization. Right. So this is what's happening. This is one of the consequences, which is not a good consequence, uh, neither for the individuals involved, nor for the society, um, I think, culturally or spiritually. Um, and yet th- these are the pressures that are on women. This is a function of the pressures that are placed on women in medicine. Family responsibilities meet stigma. Half of the respondents said women physicians are stigmatized for taking a full maternity leave, six weeks or longer. An even higher percentage, 65%, said women are stigmatized for taking more flexible or fewer hours to accommodate family responsibilities. That is real misogyny. That is the real misogyny. And you know what? That type of misogyny is not just um, coming from men in our family, right? In our family's experience comes from older women in the profession, right? who um, Who are not very understanding and who enforce and who stigmatize, but it's also men, right? This is the misogyny. Real misogyny is the war against motherhood because what I just read is a war against motherhood. Uh, full maternity leave, maternity leave, stigmatized, right? 65% of women said that they're stigmatized for, for taking more flexible or fewer hours. A 2019 survey of 844 physician mothers found that physicians who took maternity leave received lower peer evaluation scores, lost potential income, and reported experiencing discrimination. One quarter of the participants, 25.8% reported, experiencing discrimination related to breastfeeding or breast milk pumping upon their return to work. Misogyny, right? The war against not blocking women from having careers, but the war against motherhood in the career. Burnout at work puts stress on primary relationships. 63% of the respondents said, although, 24% twenty four percent said it did not strain those relationships. Thirteen percent of women gave the response not applicable. I try to be present when I'm at home, but to be honest, I don't deal with it very well. A family physician commented that's the end of the article. You could find it on um, if you Google um, maybe I'll send the link later. Maria, we could send the link out. Um, cardiology news. If you set up a free account, you could read the entire article. It's online right so so this is, what, this is what, this is the reality, right? The war on women, the war on motherhood is really war on women and war on humanity, right? It's, it's not just misogyny, it's misanthropy. Um, and so the cross that women who follow the, the, their vocation, the cross that they carry is heavier than that of men. That's, that's all the evidence you need right there is that article with, with those very large, um, you know, samplings, the statistical samplings. Um, so St. Nectarios um, is, we're very blessed to have had St. Nectarios write these things down for us because they are correctives to the bad ideas <laughs> that we have in our society, right? They are correctives. They provide us real, with real guidance um, and um, a real way forward. The next chapter is the calling of youth in society. The calling of youth in society. Now, if the previous two chapters were about mothers, the preparation of young women for motherhood, this chapter is the preparation of young men. Right? In general, it's youth. But he's talking, it says, on the Feast of the Synaxis of the Holy Archangels in 1893, when he was in Ierochirix in Theotis, at a high school in Lamia. Ierochirix. Ierochirix is an itinerant preacher. right? Usually a clergyman of any rank, uh, a deacon, uh, usually priests, but in this case a bishop. And he was assigned to uh, preaching in Theotis, which is in central Greece. It's a region in central Greece, its capital... The capital of that, of that uh, region is called Lamia. Um, and so he's addressing boys, young men in the high school. Um, and he talks about the duties and the calling and the mission of youth. Of course, you know, what he said about women and motherhood applies also to men, right? To the extent that men's calling is to be father's. Right, and women's calling is to be mothers. So you could translate; it's translatable. Whatever he says about women is translatable to men as well, because indeed, um, a man's education should be connected to his future calling, uh, to his calling to be a father. Right, not in the same way as a woman, because a woman is has um, a, a role in a uh, direct role, especially. For very young children, um, in in the raising and the education of the youngest of children, but the man, of course, also has a role. Uh, but of course, the man also has a role as a as a provider, right? So, his education should be focused on not merely not merely a fad, not merely uh, an antiquarian interest, but should be very serious about. Uh, Providing for a family Right Uh, Acquiring the skills needed And or or a profession To support a family Right So we can translate what he said about women for men Similarly we can translate What he says about young men um, To women And in Greek the title is Toneon Right which is being translated here as youth Which is gender neutral but in Greek, it's masculine, genitive masculine, plural, bon neon. Um, so in Greek, it's clear that he's talking about young men. Um, so on page 26, the second paragraph, well, he starts by talking about his obligation to, to his audience um, and his duty towards his, argue, his audience. But he says, this duty of mine toward you, I consider both weighty and pressing since youth is is as important as it is fleeting, is important on account of the great mission appointed to it, and fleeting on account of the brevity of its duration, despite which it is expected to accomplish many great things. So I want to talk about the mission. Right? Young people have a mission. A mission and a calling are looking at the same thing from two different perspectives. Right, the mission is the 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 activity that one is supposed to do, and the calling is the the message that's sent to the person in order to engage in that activity. Right. One of the problems that we have today in our society is that uh, young people do not understand their calling and do not understand that they have a mission. Right. In Saint Ignatius' society, most people understood what their mission was in life. Uh, Most of the young men in the surrounding villages in Fiotis were peasants. And their mission in life, the way that the peasants put it, was to open a house. Which was to have have a farm, right? And to be married, to have children. And in the farm, through the farm, to um, uh, raise enough fruit, right? Grain. Um, and have livestock for survival for their family to survive and if something's left over to sell it on the market but primarily they were peasants who are subsistence farmers they farm for survival that was the clear mission of the majority of youth in Theotis and in Greece and in fact in most of the world and there was no question that for, for anyone it was very clear there were a slightly smaller subgroup of of youth who uh, were pursuing a trade, right? Even in back then, this is in the 19th century, who were pursuing a trade. They wanted to be carpenters, stonemasons, right? So on and so forth. And they were pursuing trades. They were going off and learning, being apprentices, right? But their mission was clear too. Their mission was to acquire a skill, an art, to become artisans so that they could support their family. The young boys that were in the high school had a different mission, right? They were probably from families that were better off or they were from poor families, but with um, rich patrons, um, often bishops or merchants, godfathers. In fact, this is the function of the, of the godfather in Greece, right? The godfather you would ask, a, power, or a rich person to become the godfather for your child so that they can, he can sponsor his education later on. But also bishops did the same thing because they were trying to look, they were looking for clergy. And so these boys were sponsored or they came from rich families and they were sent to this high school and they had to discern their mission, their purpose, right? The, our mission is like the wind in the sails of a ship, of a sail ship, a sailboat. If the sailboat has no wind, it goes nowhere. It stagnates. Eventually, the people on the ship run out of supplies, and they die. But they run out of water. I mean, they could fish, but they run out of water, right? And if there's no wind, right? Similarly, uh, a youth without a mission stagnates, dies spiritually, and eventually becomes a failure in every other sense as well, right? So this is why we have to inculcate, and St. Nectarius has a roadmap here for us. We have to inculcate to, to the youth, their mission. They need a sense of urgency. They need to have a direction, a goal. Today we talk about goals in life. We need goals in life. From the earliest age, the problem is that when we raise children today, um, because we raise them in luxury, um, we don't cultivate this sense of urgency. We don't, well, there are exceptions, obviously, but on the whole. We don't cultivate this sense of urgency. We don't give them a mission. And that's, one of, that's the worst thing a parent can do for a child. Right? This is a form of neglect, in fact. Um, so they have a great mission. It's not just any mission. It's a great mission. Youth is also fleeting. Youth doesn't last forever. Today it seems to last longer than usual, in well into the 30s. Um, but that's another discussion. Uh, Youth doesn't last forever, so you only have a set period of time in which to do these things. Uh, And here's an example. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the entire Persian Empire all before the age of 33. Right? That's that's huge. Right? And we're not saying that all of our young men should go out and become conquerors. Right? I don't think that, that that's... That, that, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Alexander the Great was motivated. He had the skills. He acquired the skills. He had a goal. He did a lot before the age of 33. Um, and so the, one of the worst things we can do, I think, spiritually, is to waste our time. Last time, I think we were also talking about video games. But it's not just video games. It's also sports. Not, not, not playing sports, because St. has a chapter about exercise, right? Not the playing of sports, but just the mindless watching of sports, uh, especially on television. Um, video game sports, entertainment, vain entertainment, especially, or even worse, um, carnal entertainment, right? These are all time, the internet, surfing the internet time wasters time burners but it's not just time the problem with burning time is not that merely that time is money and it's true you lose time you don't use your time well you you're not prosperous right that's that part's true but that's not the biggest problem the biggest problem is that our time is given to us for the cultivation of virtue and for repentance and when we neglect that when we neglect the cultivation of virtue and when we neglect repenting from our sins, we are wasting a gift that God gave us. We are as if we're in the desert and someone gives us a large cup of water and we pour it in the sand. And we're just pouring it in the sand continually. They keep giving us more water. We don't drink it. We pour it in the sand. Um, And unfortunately, our society today is full of these types of time-wasting distractions. So the youth have a great mission, and yet they don't have a lot of time to accomplish this great mission. so this is why we need a sense of urgency um, on the next page in section three he talks about the acquisition of virtue and he, and he and he lays out the the consequences right this is this and um, the benefits and the um, the losses from the either the cultivation of virtues or the cultivation of vices, right? Uh, he says, The virtues and vices of youth itself, however, are general in character since they develop the next generation upon whom the nation and the state will bestow the bequest of forefathers and all the treasures of previous generations. The youth will be entrusted with the homeland's honor and glory. It will guide the state. It will cultivate the arts and sciences. It will contribute to the prosperity of citizens. It will adorn the polity, the nation, and the church. It will shape the moral character of society. If young people, and in the Greek it says young men, but it's true for women as well, if young people become virtuous, this virtue will save all things. If young people succumb to vice, this vice will destroy our things. And aren't we seeing that today? I think we see that very clearly in front of us today. If young people become virtuous, young men and women become virtuous, this virtue will save all things. If young people succumb to vice, this vice will destroy all things. Think about the history of the last 50 years like the people who are old today were young once they were young in the 1960s the 1960s was the era of rebellion it was the era of the sexual revolution there is no virtue in the sexual revolution and there is no virtue in the re- in the particular type of rebellion that these people were engaged in and they created a society that is now, they inherited a society and they shaped it to the point where it is on the verge of collapse. Right? We are on the, on the edge of a precipice. Everyone has an impending sense of doom. Right, uh, We don't know uh, where we're going. We're certainly far away from our base, from our center. And then we see their children and the the, the children of these people are worse than their parents. They're worse off than their parents, right? This is the first generation in American history where the children are worse off than the parents, even financially. It's not coincidence that the moral decline preceded uh, a, a financial decline, right? A decline in prosperity. That's not a coincidence. There's a real relationship there. There's a causal relationship there. And we see these young people today burning and destroying cities and not being able to explain what they're doing. Right The city of Portland has over oh, close to a 100 days of riots. Today, 2020. right? In the meantime, the old baby boomers who are now in their 60s and 70s are are huddled inside their homes afraid to go outside right afraid to die afraid to admit that they're mortal they're they're afraid that if they go out they'll catch this virus and die because it, it affects old people more than young people so they'd rather shut down the entire economy and keep young people away from being productive in order to save their own hides that's what it, that's what's going on. And it's because they, they cultivated vice in their youth and lived vicious lives. Yes, and they want to regain their youth, but they can't. It's impossible. They try it with chemicals, but they make themselves more sick. Right? Um, and so we see exactly, this is almost a prophecy uh, that St. Niktarios, it's almost a prophecy that he's saying that if young people succumb to vice, this vice will destroy all things. But I don't just mean to speak doom and gloom, right? The first sentence is our way out. This is the only way out. It's not voting for Trump. It's not voting for the conservatives or whatever. Uh, necess- I mean, they should vote for them, but that's not <laughs> the only solution. Um, it's, it's virtue. Yeah, and, and admittedly, Trump is not exactly a paradigm of virtue. But the point is, it's virtue. This is the way out. It's not through electoral politics that we're going to get out of this. It's through the cultivation of virtue. And the cultivation of virtue starts inwardly. All of the solutions to all of our problems are all, always about making other people do something different. Making other people change. Not changing ourselves. Not cultivating virtues in our inward virtues starts inside right and the right it starts with us but it also starts with the children cultivating virtues in children and saint nectarius in the previous essay talked about exposing children only strictly only to what is true to what is good and what is beautiful because that's the foundation that exposure is the foundation upon which they will live Virtuous lives, right only what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. this is what our our household should be based on um, Then he says something very important after in in the end of this paragraph in the beginning of the next he says. On account of its great importance, then, the state and parents turned their intense concern toward youth so that young people might become capable men, able to maintain, and of course, by extension, women, able to maintain the precious inheritance which their homeland will entrust to them to increase increase its glory and to cause its name to be praised, having become good men and upright citizens. Succeeding generations receive the bequest of their forefathers, and here he's paraphrasing uh, St. Paul uh, from the Epistle to the Philippians, the Philippians four: "Whatever is holy, whatever is noble, whatever is beautiful, whatever is good, whatever is great, whatever is glorious." St. Paul says, "Think about these things." St. Nicttao says, "But by right of succession, right they receive the bequests of their forefathers, whatever is holy whatever is noble, whatever is beautiful, whatever is good, whatever is great, whatever is glorious, by right of succession they receive it. But they are duty-bound to preserve this bequest and deliver it to the next generation, having made it greater and more illustrious. So Saint uh, places the youth in time, right, having received a bequest, having received a tradition having received a, a civilization Right, he's talking here about orthodox civilization orthodox civilization orthodox have many contradictions orthodox nations but their civilization is based on what? on whatever is holy, whatever is noble whatever is beautiful, whatever is good whatever is great, whatever is glorious that is the foundation of orthodox civilization all orthodox nations Have that as their core. That's why they're very similar to each other. Because there's only one thing that's holy, right? There's only one thing that's noble. There's only one thing that's beautiful. There's only one thing that's good. There's only one thing that's great, so on and so forth, right? And the youth receive this from their fathers. It's passed down. I received it from my fathers. My children will receive it from me. I often think my daughter is five. I often think. In the year 2100, when she's 85, God willing, and I'll be gone, what will her, how will her grandchildren live if God gives her children and grandchildren? How will they live? That's dependent on me. Right? It's dependent on me because I'm the one that's going to pass down this bequest, this inheritance to my daughter, who will then, and I have to teach her, that it's important enough for her to pass it down to her children. There's a, what is the word paternal? Passing down of a pattern. Yeah. So the passing down of of this tradition. Of course, orthodoxy is the most precious thing we could pass down to our children. But orthodoxy by itself withers away, because if it's just orthodoxy in the form of doctrines, Theology. It has to be orthodoxy in the form of a life, a way of life. Orthodoxy is not merely believed, right? Orthodoxy is not merely assented to, but orthodoxy is lived. And out of the living of orthodoxy, entire civilizations have emerged, entire societies, right? Entire languages, the Slavonic language. Was created by the Church. The modern Greek language is directly descended from the language of the Gospel, the New of of Koine, Koine Greek, right? Which is simplified Ancient Greek, simplified Athenian Greek, is the parent language of modern Greek. And the modern Greek language has kept its has kept its form very close to its original, more than other languages, because of the Divine Liturgy. Right? and every other language of the Orthodox Christians, whether it's Romanian or Arabic or, or uh, Georgian, have been deeply impressed with the seal of the Orthodox life. Right? To the point where when I teach modern Greek, for example, because I do teach modern Greek, I have to explain Orthodoxy to my students in order for the grammar to make sense sometimes in order for the vocabulary words to make sense right these patterns are have entered into the deep structure of the mind of these peoples and that is exactly what needs to be passed down this entire way of life not merely the ideas not merely the practices divorced from life going to liturgy but then leaving liturgy and the rest of your life doesn't apply to doesn't has nothing to do with the liturgy Right? An entire way of life is, is passed down. And so St. Nectarius says that this is a duty. We are duty bound. What happens when you don't fulfill your duty? You're punished. It's not an option. Right? Um, By the way, speaking about a mission, here's the mission. This is the mission. Right? When you're duty bound, you're compelled. You're, you're called forward you're pushed forward, you're compelled to do something. Um, and we're called to add to this, not merely preserve it in a passive way, although preserve, admittedly, preserving it unchanged without adding anything to it is better than losing it. right? And sometimes there have been generations, there have been episodes in history, the history of Orthodox peoples, where they've just gotten by, by the skin of their teeth, right? They just the fact that they were just able to preserve this way of life without change was, is, is a huge success, right? But we're called to add to it. How do you add to orthodoxy? You can't add to orthodoxy. You can't add anything to orthodoxy. And you can't take away anything to orthodoxy without, without destroying it, right? Without losing it. On the other hand, you can add to orthodox civilization, you could add, by the way, I just thought of something, you can add to orthodoxy if you become a saint, you become another saint, right? And you add grace and you bring you become a conduit of grace, there you can add to orthodoxy itself. But you could also add to orthodox civilization. The baseline is is having children and raising them in an orthodox way and providing for the future of the nation of, of the Orthodox nations. But beyond that, there's also, we put our creative activity, our, our creativity, and we create things, right? We create a society that's just, that's based on Orthodox principles. We, we acquire skills and arts, and we, those of us who have the talent, which we should not bury, we, we use them for the church, to paint, to build, to speak, to sing to console, to counsel, to teach, right? All these things we we add, we add a little stone, right? Not a big stone. We just need to add a little stone. We just have to do it though. And that's a big step to add a little stone to this huge edifice. Um, And then on page 28, paragraph five, he talks about struggle, The preservation of inherited wealth, of course he doesn't mean finances, although the finances, you know, yes, this is true for finances as well, but finances are not what he's talking about. The preservation of inherited wealth, this civilization, requires struggle. A soft and undisciplined life is a life not conducive to this end. The life of our forefathers, who stored up for us the bliss we presently enjoy, was a life of ceaseless struggle struggle we're born into this world to struggle that's the only way we acquire virtue that's the only way we are washed of our sins that's the only way we ascend to god is through struggle our society tells us the opposite that our main goal is to avoid struggle that's why you have politicians now talking about a universal income. Just pay, give everyone money and they could, they could buy Netflix and watch videos all day and eat popcorn, right? Um, that's, of course, an extreme example. But every other, in other ways as well, the, the, the pursuit of luxury, the pursuit of convenience, right? All those are avoidance of struggle. Why do people abandon Christianity in this day and age? What's the main reason? The main reason is a rejection of the idea that they must sacrifice. A rejection of struggle. Right? And usually, it's a rejection of the struggle for moral purity. Most people leave Christianity because they do not believe, they do not want to struggle morally to preserve their own purity. It's usually carnal, the reason why people leave the church. And they come up with many excuses, language, they come up with the hypocrisy of the people around them. Well, if okay, everyone else might be a hypocrite, but if you don't want to be a hypocrite, just say the truth. Right? People leave the church because they want to have sex. And the church says, that's not, God doesn't allow this. God God does not allow sex outside of marriage. God does not allow um, fornication. He does not allow homosexuality. Not because God is arbitrary. He doesn't want us to be happy, but precisely because he wants us to be happy. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to give us His grace. What is grace? I mean, think of, the, think of the meaning of the word. Grace brings joy. He wants us to have joy. But the problem is our passions, when we become enslaved to our passions, drain us of all joy. Right? We can't have joy. If, if sex is, is had outside of marriage it's never a source of joy. It's always a source of suffering. Right? It always causes pain. It causes psychological pain. It causes people to not be able to have relationships. destroys relationships. Instead of being the fruit of a relationship, it destroys their relationship. Because what the Church tells us, the rules that the Church gives us, the commandments are the commandments of Christ and Christ is not speaking arbitrarily, but He's speaking on the basis of how He made us. They are consonant with our nature. The only way to be happy is to act in accordance with our nature, which does not mean that we won't struggle. It does not mean that we won't struggle. In fact, to be happy, you have to struggle. You're never, you're never going to be happy without struggling. Right? Um, and so it's not just about morality, it's also about other things as well It's also, uh, you know, sexual morality It's also about um, other things that people find constraining Not eating what they want whenever they want um, But it's also about this, this This huge inheritance, our civilization right, And our faith, which is the crown The preservation of inherited wealth requires struggle. Our fathers had to struggle continually to preserve what they received. And thus, we must struggle continually if we are to preserve it and pass it on to our descendants. I'm a historian. So I'll tell you that this is literally true. Every step along the way, someone struggled greatly. People died, right? Um, This is why we need to study our history, by the way, to know those struggles, to be inspired by their struggles. Also to avoid the mistakes that were made because there were many mistakes made along the way, right? But this is the value of studying history, to be inspired by those struggles. This is why history gives us um, patterns, gives us examples. To follow. Of course, in the greatest examples of all are the saints, but then there are many other examples as well of lesser status, but sometimes more applicable in our uh, situations, uh, everyday life. We have pious kings, pious queens, and princes, and generals, and soldiers, right? We have uh, aristocrats and scholars who are saints, but many who aren't saints as well, who also uh, struggled. Um, and the millions upon millions of common people, of peasants, and the fishermen, who struggled. Think about, think about the years between 1453 and for many parts of the Orthodox world, 1912, not just 1821, 1912, or 1922, right? Um, 1453, and for Asia Minor, it's 1071. By the way, 1071 to 1922. That's that's, that's like 900 years, um, and yet they preserved. It's the common people that preserved the faith. the um, the patriarchs, uh, the Orthodox patriarchs of the East. In 1848, right, the patriarch of Constantinople, the patriarch of Antioch, the patriarch of Jerusalem, patriarch of Alexandra, Alexandria wrote an encyclical in response to the Roman Catholic, a Roman Catholic invitation to submit to papal rule. Um, it was futile for them to ask the Orthodox to do that. But the Orthodox, it was an opportunity. And providentially, the, it was a providential opportunity. And so the, the patriarchs responded. And they gave all the theological reasons why we can't, we can't be in communion with the Catholics, with the, the Latins, right? Um, But at the end, they said, and look, the people, we have the people to contend with because the people are are the guardians of orthodoxy. The people are the guardians of orthodoxy. And ecclesiologically, the way this works is that the Holy Spirit works through the entire church. It's not just the bishops making decisions, it's the bishops making decisions. And the rest of the church accepting those decisions. Because how many times the bishops made decisions and the church has rejected the decisions? The body of the church has rejected the decisions. There, there's a, a whole series of robber councils that happened in, the, in, in late antiquity. Like the most famous being in 431. I'm sorry, 449 in 449, which styled itself as the 4th Ecumenical Council, but it wasn't the 4th Ecumenical Council. It was the Robber Council, in which a whole bunch of bishops espoused false doctrines. Right? They, be, they were monophysites. The Church rejected them. And then there was a council a few years later in 451. That's the real 4th Ecumenical Council. Um, so it's not just the bishops making decisions but it's the bishops because the holy spirit we believe we do believe that when in synod, in synod the holy spirit inspires the bishops like it inspired the holy apostles on the day of pentecost but the holy spirit also inspires the entire body of the church it flows to we're all chrismated we receive the gift of the holy spirit that's not poetic that's literal so we are, mo- we are moved by the Holy Spirit and so it's the entire church think about all the the, the common people the illiterate people who resisted both the, the attraction of becoming Catholics with the Crusaders and also resisted the attraction of becoming Muslims with the Ottomans right and St. Cosmas the Aetolian, whose feast day is coming up um is, is one of those the itinerant preachers that went out to inspire these people to give them strength right, to maintain this struggle to keep their, their inherited wealth so a calling on, on uh, page 29 paragraph 7 the calling is accompanied by duties he says now Aware that you have such a calling, that you have such duties, who among you can possibly be careless when it comes to a spiritual and moral reform and development? From our forefathers, we have inherited the virtues of love of of labor, love of honor, nobility, and courageousness. We get this from our forefathers, from their examples. He's, He's talking more about struggle, you must struggle in order to acquire blessings and preserve them. The whole of life is a contest, and moral fulfillment is the prize which the judge of the contest, God, awards. You will not be fulfilled if you not, do not work hard. Right? Here's the Orthodox work ethic. The Orthodox work ethic is light years superior to that of the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic is, well, if you read the Bible... God will give you, and, and, and you, you, you're, out, you're pious, God will give you worldly prosperity, right? And the piety of the Protestant work ethic is working hard, right? But St. Ictarios gives us the Orthodox work ethic. The Orthodox work ethic is you struggle for your soul, you struggle for your civilization, for your people, you work hard at what you do for all of the above. Right and God gives His reward, which is not necessarily material wealth,
1: but it's moral fulfillment.
0: Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and jump forward to um, where he talks about on page
1: thirty-two. He talks about know thyself.
0: Right? Know thyself. Thalis of Militos. He says, know thyself. To know thyself was the beginning of every virtue. Saint Nictarius is the inheritor of a long tradition in Byzantium of combining the best of ancient Greek philosophy with Christianity. He's not the first to do this. He's the inheritor of this, because we have Saint Basil who wrote the letter to the youth, right? Which says that the when the youth are studying ancient Greek literature, they should be like bees that go to flowers and take the the nectar out, right? Um, not to all flowers, but only the good flowers, right? And so Saint Nictarius, um we saw that in his first essay that we read a couple months ago, that was back in July now, so it's a couple months ago. Um, where he said that education and religion should be combined. So he says, To know thyself was the beginning of every virtue, while the oracle at Delphi proclaimed, This is the height and pinnacle of true knowledge. Right? Knowing, in knowing himself, man knows that he is rational and a noetic being, endowed with free will, and consequently that he is a religious, social, moral, and free being, open to the divine mind, and spiritually immortal right know thyself has two dimensions this is the first dimension it's the anthropological dimension know thyself is knowing what a human being is and not just knowing what a human being is in the abstract but knowing what you are knowing what i am and he describes the different parts right the rational and the noetic he um knowing that self knowing thyself means that man knows that he is r- that he is rational means that it falls upon him to think correctly to pass judgment to draw conclusions that he has free will to do and to act in accordance with demands of the spirit, right A free will is not just to is not for our passions. This is a mistake. I am free. the mistake is, is 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 very deep because what the devil does is he convinces us that we are our passions. That What are the passions, by the way? The passions are divine, demonic energies that are motivating the soul like a marionette. The Being impassioned is a minor form, according to St. Dionysius the Areopagite, is a minor form of demonic possession. So thinking that your passions are you, that I am my passions, is the greatest of all delusions. Because the passions are demonic energy. They are the demonic will that's leading me to my destruction, always, forever, to my destruction. And to think that that's me is to be completely deceived about what's going on. This is the mistake um, that many people make when they say that When they leave the church, they think that their carnal desires are them. Connecting it back to what we were saying before, that their carnal desires are their true self. But if that was so, following your carnal passions would make you happy, but it doesn't. It doesn't make you happy. When it's disordered, it doesn't make you happy. When it's ordered, in marriage, oriented towards the beginning of children, that's what makes you happy, right? Because when a woman has a child, she's in pain during her labor, and then when the child is born, the joy that is felt at the birth of the child is so great that she forgets about the pain. I don't think men can understand that because if I fall and break my leg, I'm never gonna go over there again. Because I remember how much it how much it hurt right if I wherever I was when I broke my leg um, but the joy of a man coming into the world our Lord says this right and he knows the joy of a man coming into the world is much greater than the pain of labor, and if it's so much greater than the pain of labor it's also it's that much greater than the pleasure right and so the pleasure never pleasure outside of marriage, outside of um, childbearing, never leads to that happiness, to that joy, the joy that actually makes you forget about your pain. Um, so people think that their passions are themselves. Also the, um, the LGBTQ, whatever, uh, agenda, right? That these people who are victims of demons That the thoughts that the demons put into their heads, that's them. It's not them. It's demons. It's demonic thoughts. Right? Now we have entire political movements built around people obeying demons. Very clearly. Very openly. The free will is for the Holy Spirit. He has a free will to do and to act in accordance with the demand of the Spirit. Here it's lowercase letters, but we can also capitalize it. The Holy Spirit, right? He is noetic to ensure that provision is made for the Spirit. That he is religious and teaches him to do... uh, That he is religious, teaches him to fear God. That he is social to support the community, right? Orthodox Christians are not individualists. We are kinoniki. We are social beings, right? So we live. We are individuals that live. We're not individualists. We're individuals that live in communion with other people. That he is moral to keep the divine and human laws. That he is free to keep himself from slavery to the passions. St. Nictaris has an entire book on this topic. I don't think it's been translated yet into English, but it, it, it should be. Um, something like that. That's the title. Um, that he is open to the divine mind to seek after divine illumination. Right? Being open, open-minded. How we invert things. Being open-minded means, today, means being open to Tolerating people's blabberings, right uh, tolerating uh, being open to false doctrines to anything that overturns anything that overturns Christianity that's all it means because if you try to reverse it, the test is talk to them about orth- talk to someone who is praising being open-minded about orthodoxy and they'll close their ears. they're not open-minded. Um, Open-mindedness is about illumination. Opening up our mind to God to be illumined. Obviously, it doesn't mean we go around not listening to people. Right? We have to have the humility to listen to people when they speak. right? But we should judge what they say. Not judge them, but judge what they say. And if we have the ability to correct them, to attempt to correct them. If we don't have the ability to correct them, then just to know in our own mind what's true and what's false. But open-mindedness is only oriented to God, to seeking after divine illumination. That he is spiritually immortal to keep the spirit pure and undefiled. He who knows himself also knows his duties toward himself, his duties toward God, and his duties toward his neighbor. He knows that piety is just... Sorry, he knows that piety, justice, truth, and knowledge ought to be the the Liddite by means of which he tests his every action directed toward God, God himself and his neighbor. Piety is the foundation of virtue. So back to the first sentence of that paragraph. He who knows himself also knows his duties toward himself, toward God, and toward his neighbor. That is piety. Right? That is piety. Piety is not outwardly carrying long prayer ropes and making deep bows in church and um, you know going through all the motions of 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 worship without self knowledge, right? Without self knowledge, when it's without self knowledge. It's fanaticism. Or it's a show. It's, it's deception. One of the two. There can be no piety wh- without self-knowledge. Right? It's either deception um, or fanaticism. Um, but real piety is... Piety is a form of justice. This is why he connects this. He connects piety and justice throughout. I don't, I don't think he actually defines it that way, but that's what what underlies what he's saying. Um, What's justice? And then we'll talk about piety. What is justice? Justice is not equality. Justice is giving everyone their due in due proportion, right? To some you give more, to others you give less, right? But you give them whatever's due to them in the right proportion, Right. Further on he says that justice is the summation of all virtues It it encloses all virtues What is justice? How does it enclose all the virtues? Justice is First internal and then external Internal justice Is when all the faculties of the soul are ordered in the correct way. So the ancient Greek philosophers and the holy fathers talked about the tripartite soul. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You have the soul is, has parts, you have the, the mind, and you have the, the rational faculty, and then you have the desiring faculty, and then you have the emotive or the irascible faculty, right? And the two lower faculties, the desiring and the irascible, are like the horses of, of a chariot, right? And then the rational faculty is like the charioteer. So obviously in the chariot, the proper order is for the charioteer to lead the horses, through controlling, but reining them in, right? The impassioned soul, however, well, of course that translates to the, to the rational soul, where you have reason leading the desires and the emotions reining them in, controlling them, but leading them forward as well. Um, The impassioned soul is the opposite. It's when the emotions and the desires are leading. It's like a a chariot gone crazy. The horse is going in different directions and the the charioteer in the back either can't control him or he's asleep. And eventually that chariot's going to go off a cliff or something It's going to overturn. It's going to be a disaster. That's the point. It's going to be a disaster. So what is internal justice? It's desire, And the desiring faculty and the irascible faculty, the desires and the emotions, submitting to reason. Submitting to the rule of the mind. That's internal justice. The virtue of the mind is truth. The virtue of the desiring faculty is beauty. The virtue of the um, irascible faculty is goodness. And the union of all these faculties With the mind leading them is justice that's justice so it's giving everyone what they're due in due proportion emotions and desires are to submit to reason that's just piety is a form of justice then because piety is exactly what St. Niktarios defines it as it's a duty towards oneself towards god and towards the neighbor piety is not merely a duty towards god of course that's important but it's also a duty to the self because we're supposed to love ourselves and then we're supposed to love our neighbor like ourselves right that's that's from god it's not and so we we are we we have to know our duty to ourselves and our duty to our neighbor it's 9:45 here in the Eastern time zone. So I'm gonna pause here. I guess we could just continue with this. This is a long chapter and it's very dense. So we'll continue with the next time. Maybe we could take a few questions in the last 15 minutes or comments. And please turn your mic on because it's hard to follow the, the chat. Uh, so if you have a question, just turn the mic on and it's, it's easier that way anyway
1: so i i thought it was very important that zenotarios didn't say that people should enter into some sort of field of uh, particular study he, i think he said at one point that it's not that we should be studying philosophy music or anything it's it's the knowledge of knowledge it's it's something deeper more foundational and that you don't have to pursue one job or something it's piety and the will of god that you are instructed in in order to discern all these things. I think that was very important, but it's a, it's a very big challenge. Yeah, to, to gain the knowledge of the will of God.
0: Right. He says, "Let's see, what does he say?" He says, um, "Just as truth perfects man." This is on page thirty-seven. Just as truth perfects man and renders him according to God's image, so knowledge shows him to be the loftiest of all creatures teaching him things both divine and human. But which knowledge, I wonder, he asks. Theology, the study of God. Philology, the study of language. Astronomy, the study of the stars. Physics, the study of physical things. Law, medicine. No, none of them, he says. True wisdom alone does this. It is the science of sciences, insofar as everything is contained within it. Wisdom. Right? Wisdom contains all of that. So wisdom is above knowledge. Um, true wisdom, according to St. Basil, is the knowledge of divine and human matters and their causes. He borrows that from Aristotle. He's paraphrasing Aristotle. Aristotle says that true knowledge is the knowledge of causes. And so St. Saint, Saint, um, Basil elevates it and says, that tr- true wisdom is the knowledge of divine and human matters and their causes. There are limits to what we can know about God, but we could pretty much figure out the causes of, of human matters. Right? And we'll talk more about this next time because he, he quotes um, the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Sirach, which, by the way, if you're reading just the King James Version, you will not find the wisdom of Sirach. It's just in the Septuagint. But it's in, in Proverbs. Those are the wisdom, that's the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, wisdom, when it's brought up in the Old Testament, is a prophetic It's a prophetic uh, preaching about the Word of God. It's the wisdom of the Word of God. It's the activity, let's say, of the Word of God. So whatever wisdom is brought up in Scripture, it's Christ. That's why the Church of, the, of Hagia Sophia of Holy Wisdom was dedicated to Christ. Not to the saint, Hagia Sophia, Saint Sophia, because there are a number of saints, named saint Sophia. Nor to some kind of personification, right? Uh, nor to some kind of de- deity or anything like that. That's, that would be Gnostic. But to Christ himself. Christ
1: is the wisdom of God. One thing on that topic that I was also considering, like, St. Tarios, all of his works are, they all blend together. All of his—he's so consistent. Yes. He says in the prologue. I don't know if you have this book. I don't know if have you ever seen this in in uh, They sell the no. Terrible. It's Apanda. It's the fifth tome. Oh, well, you have all of his writings. I have this. It says, "E epignosis e aftou protisti to anthropo That's the first. You know, self knowledge is the primary duty would you say, of yes man. That's very, that's very important. And I think he means this in, in that exact sense in this chapter, what we just read. Yes. But it's duty to God to know ourselves.
0: Yes. You know, the, there's the knowing of the anthropological, the anthropological side of knowing yourself, but it's also, there's also the, the personal part, the inward part. Um, knowing yourself means paying attention to your inward life, paying attention to your thoughts not in order to converse with demons because sometimes people get into what's called the monologia where they converse with the demons Um, the demons capture them capture their minds Um, and the the monologia can lead down uh, it's a a dark rabbit hole Um, and the thing is that we, we turn our mind inwardly so again reason, our mind, our noose Governs everything Saint Gregory Palamas says like a monarch inwardly we 're a monarchy right there's no democracy in fact, Plato says that the, that the impassioned soul is the democratic soul right and that the, he says further that the democratic constitution creates passions in people and 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 creates a disordered soul but that 's Plato Saint Gregory says and Plato would agree uh, St Gregory says that the soul is. Inwardly, we're a monarchy. It's the nous um, having epistasia, having rule and oversight over the rest of the soul, and and guarding the heart. But to guard the heart, you have to know what's coming in and out of the heart. You have to be cognizant and conscious, and you have to block. You have to block the thoughts from coming into your heart. And if they come into your heart, and you fall into Syncatathesis or the consent, uh, which is a sin inwardly. It's not it's not the act itself, but it's still penanced. Um, say the Holy Fathers, then, but you have to have the self-knowledge to know that. And this is this is connected to the to repentance and confession. And what is confession? What does confession force you to do? Among other things, confession forces you to self-knowledge because you have to define what's inside you and externalize it. Put a word to it. Once you put a word on what you did, you control it, right? And you know it, and you can fight it. You're not going to fight it by yourself, right? We're not delusional that we're going to cure our, our passions by ourselves. Divine grace comes inside of us, but the divine grace has to cooperate with us. Uh, Barber says, uh, nous equals noetic. Yes, nous is the word for mind um and or intellect and thus noetic is the adjective that's derived from it uh in english in greek it's sli- it's slightly it's almost the same just a different suffix um, so the nous has knowledge and oversight epistasia over the heart and rules the heart Other questions? Okay. If there are no more questions, maybe we should uh, wrap it up for tonight. And um, we'll continue next week. Same time, same channel. Think you. you're welcome, Barbara. Um oh, yeah, let's just say a short prayer. The prayers of our Holy Father's Lord Father Jesus Christ have mercy on us and save us. Amen.